Hello, and welcome to the Mark Rose Podcast. I've been waiting to have today's conversation. It's a very important one. I mentioned previously that one of the most important skill sets we can develop in relationships, uh, it doesn't matter the type, it's especially true with romantic relationships, is the ability to sit across from someone else who has a different experience, a different belief, a different thought process, and still be curious. That I can disagree with you, but still love you. And that's hard, right? Because a lot of our beliefs are tied to our identity and also, uh, our beliefs are often correlated to our values. And so we make, you know, a lot of judgments and a lot of assumptions based on that. And it's, it's challenging to practice objectivity, you know, to, to look at someone else and, and see them and say, you got to that conclusion through your experiences in life, through whatever has occurred in your life. And I can hold space and compassion to understand that. And the real gift here, because of course, we're not saying, be compassionate and understanding to abuse or racism or anything like that. What I'm inviting is to be compassionate and curious about political stances, stances in terms of people's decisions, medical decisions. This is such a heightened subject matter, and it actually requires an immense amount of nuance, an immense amount of gray, an immense amount of dialogue, patience. And I would imagine it's probably hard to do because we've been so inundated with fear. We've been so inundated with messaging about fear of death. And whenever death comes into the picture, it's hard for us to actually explore things. We get into a very protective survival space and and that makes absolute sense. And so there's this really important ability that we must be able to develop and explore. And it didn't come naturally to me and it's still ever expanding. And that is the ability to sit in a space of curiosity and be open to the possibility that what you believe is actually wrong. And to not allow emotion to fuel immediate decisions. Like so much of what cancel culture is built upon is that we blame someone else for feeling uncomfortable And I'm not saying there is not a space to actually hold people accountable. Absolutely. And I'm really curious about exploring this subject of of more restorative justice, restorative relating. You know, in relationships, we're going to hurt one another. We're not going to agree on things. And it is the ability for both of us to sit and share our individual truths and then find a common one together. And through that, intimacy is created, depth is created, trust is created, and maybe a changed perspective. You know, when I look at my partner and she gives me feedback, she is broadening my perspective. She's literally inviting me to see the world in a different way, to be seen in a different way. And if my identity is so rigid, or I'm afraid that I'm being perceived a certain way, I won't be able to hear it. So this is some of the hardest work. And I've been really just so excited about the work of Africa Brooke. Uh, if you're not familiar with her, you must follow her on Instagram. She's incredibly brilliant. Just a great, she's so great at putting into words the thoughts, feelings, and fears that we all have. And I just can't emphasize enough how important it is to explore this cancel culture, this reactivity, this 
you know, this, this wanting the world to be trigger free, which is impossible. I've been recently reading this book by Jonathan Haidt called The Coddling of the American Mind. And he starts it off with a quote that is, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And I love that because really what he's speaking to is we have to build resilience. We have to learn how to have conversation. We have to learn how to disagree. We have to learn how to do all of that respectfully and, and do it with grace. But also this is not saying tolerating bullshit and not having boundaries and being a doormat. It seems like those are the options that it sounds like we're presenting. Like be a doormat and accept all the bullshit or be so rigid that you accept nothing, right? It's like, no, there's so much space in between those things. And we must become masters of the gray because life, all of life's most beautiful things live in nuance, lives in the vast array of space between you and I. And that's how we build bridges. That's what nuance is. That's what the gray is. So I don't want to hold back from this episode, from you getting to it. So right before we hop into it, wherever you listen to this episode, you know what I'm going to ask. Please subscribe to it so you don't miss one. And make sure you share it with your friends. Let them know, hey, this podcast kicks ass. Check it out. And please give it a five-star review and a written review. That's so helpful. I wanted to take a moment to share with you one of the most transformational moments in relationship for me. And it was due to learning about attachment theory. Attachment theory, really, when I discovered it, all of a sudden it made sense. Why do I over-pursue? Why do I get really anxious when the person I'm dating hasn't replied to me? And why do I pursue unavailable people? And why do I run from people who want to love me? And it was through learning those structures that, one, I felt really human. And it also gave me these strategies by having a good teacher in the area of attachment theory. It gave me strategies to finally communicate, to finally say the things I was feeling, to finally get the courage, to finally create security. And I remember this moment where Kylie and I were both laying on the bed and we were both flooded, you know, that overwhelm where you can't, the words are sitting in your throat. You got so many words, but you don't know how to get them out. And I remember just after the understanding I'd had and like how she related and what her attachment style was, there was just this moment when I finally put into words, I took the courageous leap to finally state something that I needed to be able to create security in our relationship. I knew that if I wanted to move forward and open my heart more, I needed to have this conversation and create security because it was about that more than it was about keeping the peace. And that was a really important moment in my own relationship and certainly in Kylie and I's relationship, but in the way I related because I started to show up more secure. I started to realize that I had to create security. I couldn't chase it. I couldn't chase connection. I had to create it. Hence, you know, of course, why I call it create the love. Although create the love was, it was called that before this actual experience. And so this is why I've created a course with one of the world's best teachers, Sylvie Kokashian. She's amazing at teaching attachment theory and how to understand your attachment style, your partners to give more context to your relationship experience, and then how to create security, how to change the way you attach. So whether you're single or in a relationship, this course is insanely valuable. All you got to do is go to createthelove.com slash attachment and sign up now. Without further ado, here is the badass Africa Brooke. So, you know, you talk a lot about the cost of self-censorship, the cost of self-sabotage, 
Can you speak to like where that came from or, or in what context? Cause for people, they might be like, what is self-censorship and you know, where does this show up? Right. And that's the, that's the amazing thing about kind of terms and labels that a lot of the time we think we don't know what it means, but intuitively we really do. Um, so I'm more than happy to delve into it. So for me, self-sabotage specifically, which is one of my biggest, biggest areas of focus in the work that I do and what I've been doing for the past five years, it starts from my own sobriety journey. So I had a, I had a very, very, very destructive relationship with alcohol and drugs from the age of 14 up until 24, which is when I finally got sober. And you know, it's not as if I just tried one time and now I've been sober for five years. No, I relapsed seven times before I could finally get sober. And this final time, something was a little bit different because instead of just internalizing this idea that I am morally flawed because I can't get this sobriety thing right, I just started to get curious what is actually happening on a brain based level? What is happening in terms of my behavior? what is happening? I just, I just, mm. it was a seemingly subtle change, but I just started to get curious, which is something that I feel that we're really, really missing right now. I just started to get curious. So I started researching, wanted to find out what are these behavioral patterns? And that's when I discovered the concept of self-sabotage. So it's mm. something that I knew int intuitively and I'd been practicing it, but I didn't have the language for it. So self-sabotage essentially is when you get in your own way. You always find yourself in, th in these cycles where maybe things are going well, but you just do something to kind of put a spanner in the works. And I know you speak about this quite a little bit as well. So when I started to get curious about it, I started sharing my story. I started just accidentally built the platform that I have now. Anytime that I felt I was going to drink, instead of actually picking up a drink, I would just share it. I didn't know who it wow. was reaching, but I just knew I needed to hold myself accountable in some kind of way. So in exploring self-sabotage, I started to realize that it wasn't actually me just wanting to get in my own way. I was protecting myself from something. I mean, the list of mm. things is extensive, but when I realized that it, it was actually self-protection, just manifesting in a way that was not helpful, Again, that sent me on another journey to find out what it was. That's when I came across self-censorship. Growing up in a very conservative household, so I'm from Zimbabwe in Southern Africa, very conservative culture. Religion is a very big thing. So a lot of things do get suppressed, whether that is sexuality mm -hmm. or just different forms of self-expression. So you kind of learn to censor yourself at a very young age. And because my father was also an alcoholic in the household, you had to censor yourself because if you don't, you might get hit or something else will happen, right? So from a very young age, I, I kind of held those two things very closely, the self-censorship, which then led to self-sabotage. So when I started to share my ideas out into the world, I realized that I really had a gift of sort of turning, and I, I'm sure this is the case for many people, really being able to not just hold my own story to myself, but to see if anyone else is experiencing the same thing. So mm -hmm. other people don't feel as if they're morally flawed to start getting curious about their behavior, to start wanting to discover something much deeper. And my work has sort of evolved from there. But where what it looks like today is I realized that Self-sabotage is one thing where it's just about the individual, but what we're now starting to see play out in culture is what I call collective sabotage. 
where now we kind of project our individual experiences onto the entire world. And we have this idea that everyone needs to share this very same experience. And if they don't, and if they don't agree, that means they are the enemy. So now it's at a very collective scale. So my work has evolved in that way where before I used to kind of focus on the individual, which I do now, but now I'm starting to take a closer look at how those individual tendencies start to kind of shape how we are as a collective. So that's kind of a, in a nutshell, look. Yeah, it's such an interesting transition from the individual yeah. to the collective, like to witness, you know, that's why I love hearing about your journey and people's journeys, because it shows you that you were perfectly, uh, you went through the perfect things to design your experience yes. to have a voice and a perspective that, I mean, you're asking people to take pause for a moment and just consider just I, in your last Instagram live, I watched, you know, you talked about how curiosity might just save us all and, mm -hmm. and the importance of curiosity. And, you know, I've spoken about this also with the conversation about COVID and the conversation about public health measures. Like you can't even ask a question. You can't even say, Hey, maybe the vaccine isn't for me. And that doesn't mean I'm anti yeah. anything. I'm actually, it, there's really smart people asking questions that don't have answers yet. And then they're being vilified. And this is happening, right. as you said, in every conversation, it conversations about uh, every aspect of what is in our mainstreams or the things that people don't yes. want to talk about that we all need to ask questions to be able to learn how to navigate to not step on landmines. Right. And you know what? It, it sounds so simple, but something that I always repeat to myself and, and people around me is that if we don't have questions, we have nothing. If we don't have questions, we don't even have conversation. And to even find an answer to some of these things that are happening, we need to have questions. And I find it a very worrying place to be where we're more fearful of asking the question instead of being fearful of what the answer might be, if that makes mm. sense, which is such a, it's such a bizarre thing. And I'm also just wondering, how did we even get here? And I think people have very different answers um, for why that could be, but I'm sure we've all seen a massive shift in the past year, the year of 2020. Something definitely happened there, whether it was because, you know, we're kind of locked down and we have nowhere else to be apart from being online uh, maybe a lot of things that were repressed are now starting to come to the surface. You know, I just wonder what it is, but I always come back to the fact that if we, if we can't even ask questions, we have, we have absolutely nothing. Yeah. And it's fascinating that whatever position is taken by the experience of the lack of curiosity, you know, because I want to make sure that I'm not doing what is often done is that there's a righteousness to the perspective. And so, yes. You know, I've noticed that the sort of main narratives that get pushed or the 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 media messaging creates propaganda that creates you're a good person if you see the world this way. And if you don't, right. then you're actually a problem. And I feel like what you were saying about this idea that uh, there's something morally wrong with me, which mm. goes back to why we might uh, have so much shame that makes us want to uh, hit some dopamine and some serotonin and all the yeah. stuff so that we can get out of our bodies so we can disassociate because someone taught us that a different perspective is actually morally wrong uh, yeah. when really it's just constructed morality to create behavior, desired behaviors. And we're sort of, you know, if you read 
any books on propaganda and you're just mm-hmm. starting to see how, I mean, propaganda works when you don't know it's being done to you. I mean, when people are like, yes. there's no propaganda, I'm like, that's the whole point, actually. <laughs> the, you're supposed to be mad at design. me. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? And, you know, something that I'm really trying to encourage in the work that I do and the conversations mm-hmm. I have is to just invite us all to just embrace the gray area. Um, because we're so in the binary right now. And you're absolutely right. You're either pro completely with not a, not a single question lurking. Yeah, no doubts. And if you do, you're anti straight away. There's no, you, you can't negotiate that process. You don't get to decide what it looks like. It just is right. We're Mm -hmm. being sold that idea, but that's not true. You know, you're either left or you're right, but actually what if you're just a person that looks at everything through a case-by-case lens. You know, context really does matter. So if I over-identify with either left or right, does that mean that I take everything hook, line, and sinker? Right. No, right? So it's almost as if, and when you say these things out loud, they sound so obvious, but we're so sucked into it that we don't even, (laughs) we don't even realize, which is why I tend to laugh at it quite a bit, because I think the laughter also disarms people and it just makes you think, oh my goodness, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about it in that way. So it's just an invitation into the gray, which is where most of us, if not all of us actually exist, right? Mm. That, and that permission to even just be in it, because really that permission is to be human. And it's interesting that we're actually, you know, I've never really thought of this, but it's, Interesting that we're sort of dehumanizing ourselves by taking these extreme poles that other, the other people, you know, automatically puts them in an other category. And, Mm. and, you know, I remember Brene Brown talking about this, that as soon as you make someone an other psychologically, you can now harm them. Like you're actually open to harming. Gosh, you see that. I mean, I can't tell if someone trolling me is a bot or a human anymore because people are paying people to troll now. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's so bizarre. And what you just said is so important about, um, you dehumanize yourself first. And what I've really realized in the past five years, because I did experience this myself, is that once you are quite uncomfortably comfortable in that place of dehumanizing yourself, it's so easy to do it to other people, which is why I refer to it as collective sabotage, because me deciding to dehumanize myself That is self-sabotage. But now once I'm locked into that space, it's so easy for me to dehumanize you. And if I see you asking questions, if I see you taking an alternative route, if I see you being in your sovereignty, that is a threat to me in some kind of way. So I can't let you do that, you know? And that's what we're seeing on a mass scale. It's no longer just a few people. It's now almost a norm. Yeah, it's it's scary. It's scary when... I want to dance in the space between be the bridge of the conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think you do a really beautiful job of that because even in your intro to your lives, they're always filled with these qualifiers of like, here's what the bridge (laughs) looks like. Here's what you being triggered looks like. And if you don't like it, get the fuck out. Like, yes. And, you know, because I get similar (laughs) things where people are like, uh, I'm disappointed in you. And I'm like, oh, good. That's good that you told me because my whole goal was to be approved by a random person on the internet. (laughs) But like my, the child in me, the human in me feels the hurt of those words. But I've learned that my own codependency, my own desire to not 
want people to not like me or whatever it is. I have to, the truth has to come before that always. And, you know, you spoke to your experience stepping into sobriety. And, you know, when I stepped into sobriety too, uh, what was fascinating is that I explored this, what was I most afraid of? And it was Mm -hmm. that I would get to these parties or a wedding or, you know, there's always the next event that you, I'll just wait till after that to get into alignment and integrity with myself. And I just kept delaying. And I remember thinking, I'm just afraid of what people will think of me when I say I'm not drinking, how they might feel. I'm afraid they might feel like they drink too much. And I'm like, that's codependency. Like, I got to kick this out, you know? Right. And, you know, and, you know, as you're saying that, it reminds me of um, something that I really do like to emphasize when I speak, which is self-responsibility. I don't know about you, but I I truly believe that is something that is really lacking from just how people form their identity. They don't seem to prioritize self-responsibility, which is how it then leads to entitlement, right? The idea that I don't have to be responsible for my feelings. You're responsible for my feelings. So for example, let's use social media, a platform that has 500 million, if not more daily users, and you post something a very specific subject, and someone is just outraged that you didn't speak to their subjective experience. So you are a demon, (laughs) right? So now they don't have to be responsible for how they filter information. They don't have to do that anymore. Now they don't have to sit with themselves and say, ooh, why did that kind of rub me the wrong way? Why did that word that Mark just said, why did that make me feel away? Let me just kind of see what that is. No, It becomes Mark is the issue. This post is the issue. We need to have this taken down. No self-responsibility. You then have to be responsible. Again, we're seeing this on a mass scale. And those people I find are the loudest. And I'm just going to be honest, they're annoying. And they don't because they can't even, they're so hijacked by their amygdala that they Mm. cannot even participate in discourse. So I'm simultaneously feeling compassion for them as to what got them there to the space that they can't even experience that they might not be right or that they might not be validated by a random guy on the internet or a random woman, Mm -hmm. you know, and that seems to have been creeping up on us for some time, you know, that we don't want anyone to experience being wrong or not being validated. And because of that, we can't even have a conversation about their identity or their conversation or their beliefs. And I really, what I find so interesting relationally about that is if we can't do that in political topics or topics that are hot buttons, which are so important, right? Like I need to be able to understand your perspective and, and, and there might be value from you understanding mine. And in that we find this bridge that creates intimacy and trust Mm -hmm. and safety that You and I are in this conversation. We likely have certain beliefs that are similar. And we, I would likely be be convinced of some of yours because you're so good at Mm. orating that space. And it just builds a friendship. It builds an honest space that says, you might not agree with what I'm saying, but there's safety for me to be wrong. And there's safety for you to be wrong and right. And in that is just the most beautiful humanness you know? Yes, I agree. I agree. And 
it reminds me of something that I also think about often and I, I like to share when I can is that we have to fucking coexist, whether we like it or not. That's 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 just what we it is, to. right? Is it not better to at least understand each other so that we can do that in a way that is conducive, a way that actually adds to our well-being instead of takes from it? And I, I think it can also be very easy to hear what we're talking about and to also be like, yeah, actually, I have seen that. I have noticed that. And to feel hopeless. But the reason I can smile and laugh and feel hopeful about this is because I really do believe that we will do better. I believe that we are. The fact that you and I can even have this conversation, the fact that my work has got the response that it has, I haven't received any pushback at all with things that I talk about. Because it's obvious that people are now seeking an alternative. We've seen yeah. that whatever we currently have, it's not working. It's it's not working. It's it's quite obvious. And I do think that the past year with everything that we've experienced with COVID, with the lockdowns, with just mental health taking a huge nosedive, we've we've tried different things and we've been vocal in many areas, but we've also misplaced our outrage in the process, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't always think outrage is a bad thing. I think it can be useful. However, yeah. I think it's extremely misplaced right now. So to me, it feels as though we're, we're kind of just trying to find what our center is, but everyone is still, most people, not everyone, most people are still very much afraid because they've seen what the consequences can be for speaking out. Because if you had tried to have this conversation that you and I are having last summer, oh my, I don't, we, we couldn't have we'd had both it. both be canceled. <laughs> yeah. You can't even cancel a podcast, but they'd find a way to cancel both their podcasts. <laughs> they would find a way. But now that, you know, it's been a year later, there's still a bit of intensity in some areas, but now people are trying to find what the middle ground could be. Mm. And we do have some voices like yours, like mine, and many others who are starting to ask the questions, who are starting to invite people into the gray. So I do feel very hopeful. And I, I also encourage anyone that is seeing all of these things play out to not allow it to really consume you because it can be so easy to consume you. Like you were talking about with the media, if you truly believed Um, what the media tells you, you would think that the world is a horrible, awful place, that it's never been worse. When actually, we've never had it better. If you were to look at everything collectively and look at the, not just how Africa feels, me, if you were to look at the data, the stats, we've never had it better on planet Earth, right? Even if you look at poverty levels compared to 20 years ago, we've never had it better. But if you focus on the media too much, including social media, including your own echo chambers, it can be so easy to be sold on this idea that everything is crumbling. But all you have to do sometimes is just log out and interact with real life people to just even feel a grain of hope, right? Just maybe <laughs> chat with a real life human. And I, yes, all you're saying, all of what you're saying is such a beautiful invitation to unplug from the things that hijack your brain like they are designed to hijack your mind they're designed to keep you on there and you know in that movie this social dilemma they say uh if you don't know what the product is you are the product like if it's free it's not free you know and it's not i'm definitely noticing that i'm curious when you talk about collective Mm self-sabotage what is it that you think we are or believe what do you believe that we are preventing ourselves from experiencing like, what mm-hmm. is that? 
Right. I I believe that it's it refers to what we currently call cancel culture, right? Mm. I truly believe that has taken over. Um, this idea that who you were five years ago, 10 years ago, even five months ago, is who you are right now in this moment in time. So you are judged by your biggest mistake or the mistake that is perceived to be the, the biggest by faceless, nameless people, which is another sinister part of it. You you don't know you don't who get to talk feels to this way. No, you yeah. don't get to talk to them, but you do get to apologize to all of them, even if it's millions, but that's so a- nice that's a, that you get that's to- a whole, <laughs> What a gift. So kind. Yeah. I get to apologize to you. Will you write my yeah. apology for me? That'd be nice. <laughs> right? But it's never good enough. That's what they don't tell you. So it's it's a combination of so many things. Public humiliation is something that a lot of people are protecting themselves from. And it's no longer a thing where you need to be, quote unquote, a public figure to experience this public humiliation. You could have a social media account with 50 people, 200 people, but in the comment section, you're going to get the exact same intensity as someone that has done the most abhorrent thing. So there's no case by case. There's no context. There's no nuance. Everyone gets the same swarm of bees. So people are trying to protect themselves from that because they've seen what happens to everyone else. So it's what I call cancellation by proxy, right? It's Mm. people have seen what happens to someone else and I don't want that to happen to me. So what do I do? I sense myself. So I don't even step into what I call mindful speech where I see, okay, is it useful for me to say something? How can I convey my message? Because it's still important for me to say something. Do I say it publicly or should I speak to someone at least privately just so I can kind of work with this idea or concept? No, that's not even considered. You just censor yourself immediately. So that's what I call, well, it's part of what I call collective self-sabotage, where it's about a fear of being cast out by the community or being Mm. ostracized. But there's actually no community, which is also the other bizarre thing. That's interesting. Yeah, like you're being ostracized by a community that's not a true community anyway. Yeah. Yeah, what you're speaking to, I grew up Catholic, you know, and mm. I would say I grew up on the fringes of Catholicism because I always had a hard time putting both feet in because it didn't feel aligned for me. There was, you know, I remember in high school, they brought in this young couple in my religion class who had gotten pregnant and they basically had this couple talk to us to convince us not to have sex. So we didn't become like them. And I remember sitting in the class, just feeling so much compassion for these two people And that I wasn't being educated. I was being shamed. They were being shamed and publicly humiliated in some way, even though it was masquerading as education. But, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't talk about sex. They just talk about abstinence, which works, except it doesn't. But that's a whole other conversation. I couldn't fully step into it. And what I noticed, my mom grew up in Dublin, Ireland. So if you were not aligned religiously or and there were obviously poles of religion that were existing there and still do a bit is that if you made a mistake or you made a human error or you were curious about sexuality or anything, you were exiled, you know? And I think the churches have really modeled that the most. Um, And no, I'm not devaluing the beauty of spirituality and community that can Mm. come from church. And I think that's often what I find so fascinating about the conversation we're having is the criticism or the discussion of something that's not healthy about a structure or a system or a culture or public health is immediately means it devalues the people that matter or the, you know, 
So I'm curious what yes. you think about all that. Oh my goodness. Yes, 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 yes. And I'll just touch on the very last thing that you said, because it speaks to, again, this very binary way of thinking, this very binary way of thinking, just you raising a point in one area suddenly is supposed to mean that everything you're, you're trying to devalue the entire thing. And it's no, no, we're just trying to speak about a very specific thing, nuance and context. And you said something so powerful just then when you said masquerading as education, which is, I mean, speaks to so much of what we're seeing right now. Uh (laughs) Has anyone ever told you to educate yourself, Mark? Right. God forbid (laughs) I take self-responsibility but you got to filter through, you know, I think it, 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 it builds upon something that occurs young in our lives when we don't realize it yet, which is Mm. the eradication of sovereignty and the trusting of systems like our food systems, big ag, big pharma, big Mm -hmm. money, big everything. And, and that we sort of, because we stop being with the land, because we stop being with community, I then trust these organizations to take that work away so I can be more productive and a better worker and be part of this cog, thereby not feeling connected to the land. And as you said, that self-censorship, that self-sabotage, because I'm afraid of being exiled from this imaginary social media community. And I've Mm. certainly experienced that, you know, it's like you say something and then you get DMs that are like, you're an awful person, you're this. And I'm like, I'm just trying to have a convo. I didn't, you know, I think that's that right. that duality where we were taught to self-abandon, to be part of something. And then I feel like what you're saying, this space of hope, is that I'm not willing to self-abandon to be part of any group that requires me to self-abandon. So if because yes. I've lived there, I know what it's like. I I drank to be part of it. I, you know, and mm-hmm. and when you are finally in your body and you I think you feel like I feel at least personally like I'm still collecting pieces of me that I've sort of given away. Um, it, It both enrages me because people don't see it, but then I also realize I never saw it. So you can't save people, right? Like they have to save themselves and yeah. Right. And, and you know what, this is why I still choose it. It comes quite naturally to me, but it has to be a choice every single time when I encounter someone really fucking annoying online. And I I really wish they could just... (laughs) I could send you a few profiles next time I get one. Oh, please do. Thank you. I have to be compassionate. Mm -hmm. I show compassion because I was never really involved in cancel culture or in canceling behavior or anything like that. But there were times when I echoed some of the same sentiments and I didn't parroted some of the same phrases even. For example, silence is violence. I think for a very brief moment, I truly believed in that until I asked myself, actually, what does this mean? And when can this be applied? Does this mean if someone is silent on a specific issue or when I just started to ask myself again questions? So I say all of that to say that compassion is something that I really do choose when I have conversations like this. And when I encounter people that could easily lead me to a place of being self-righteous, because I think I know better, because I feel I can see the situation much clearer because it's obvious to me, right? I choose to be very compassionate. And that ties in with the hope that I feel because 
when we're able to be compassionate with people, I think we have more patience, which allows us to convey messages much better. Because if I was always in a place of frustration and resentment, I would make it about myself. I would make it about myself and how I feel, but it's really not about me. I'm trying to really see the bigger picture here. Yes, I'm the person, I'm the vehicle where the message is coming through, but it's much bigger than me. I think of the fact that as adults, it's easy for us to have this conversation, but what about people that are growing up in this age? What about young kids? I get messages from parents all the time saying how frightened their child is to share who their family voted for, for example, because they might be cancelled, you know, with being so afraid to share things online or to even speak to their friends because they're so afraid of what's going to happen to them. Are they going to be, you know, harassed on social media? Are their friends going to... So this stuff is really, it's real. It's not just isolated to social media. It's actually spilling out into the real world. So that's why I think conversations like this are very, very, very much important. And I know that, you know, it can be easy to resist having these conversations because it feels safe to just not Mm -hmm. say anything. But this is why I say there really is a huge cost to self-censorship. And it's not just about where it will end up, but just for you as an individual, you can get sick. To put it just in very basic terms, when, and I'm sure you know this, Mark, very well. When you're repressing something, you can actually get very, very, very sick, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally. So it's just a cycle that keeps on going and going and going if we don't say, you know what, no, I'm going to choose to do something differently. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm going to expose myself to different information, right? I'm going to break out of these echo chambers and just see what other people are saying, what other people are thinking. If I consume something that makes me feel a little bit triggered, instead of projecting and reacting, I'm just going to sit with it just a little bit longer and then consult myself to see how I feel. Even just that very internal Mm. process can change so much. It doesn't have to be done in the public sphere because I think that's another thing about it. Because of the impact social media has, I think people have this idea that, okay, let's say I choose to remove self-censorship and ask questions Do I have to do it publicly? What if my job finds out? No, it can be a very internal process. In fact, I would argue that it needs to be an internal process to begin with before it becomes anything that is expressed externally. Yeah, when you say that internal process, when you were Mm. first speaking about compassion for other, it really made me think of like your story about sobriety. Was that that beginning of the journey of, dancing in the gray of your own complexity yes. or, you know, the comp- you design, you developed compassion for all the paradoxes and, and dualities and conflicting beliefs and all the things. And then you can, you realize the importance of it. You know what I mean? Like yes. you realize how important it is to have a space for hu- a human response, even if it's destructive, not, you know, and I think this is different than tolerance, tolerance and compassion mm-hmm. aren't the same thing. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I'm curious, is that sort of how you began to cultivate it outwardly? 100% because after I'd relapsed seven times, it was very easy to be hard on myself. It was very Mm -hmm. easy to tell myself that I am doing something wrong. First it was, I am doing something wrong. Then it was, I am wrong, which had always been the underlying story anyway. But then there was a lot of, um, struggle of identity because I knew that 
but I am a good person. I'm a, I'm a good sister. I'm a good daughter. I'm a good friend. I do, I do good things. I'm kind to people. But then I also had to hold my mess. I had to hold the fact that I could be manipulative and I had been. I had to hold the fact that I could lie very well to people, especially when I was drunk or when I was high, that I could construct this, it, this reality that was so far removed from my own. So I had to be compassionate with myself and say, actually, you're not one or the other. You're not good but you're also not bad. You just are, you just are. And it changes and it's a constant dance. And I I had to be compassionate with myself. And it wasn't as profound as it might sound, me saying it now, I had to be, I had no other choice. Otherwise I would have repeated that same pattern over and over and over again. So compassion is, I would say it's my foundational pillar of everything. Compassion and respect for me are very important and integrity and transparency. And it all comes from my sobriety, which is why when people try and really force this this idea that who you were five years ago, 10 years ago, even last year is who you are right now, I push back against that entirely, entirely, because intuitively we know that people change. You know, you might get a Facebook status that comes up from three years ago and you're like, oh, fuck, did I, did I really share? Did I, I think really 10 share, years ago, share I shared that? a lyric from Taylor Swift when I was going through a breakup. <laughs> so like, you know, if I get right? canceled for that, I get it. I get it. You know? <laughs> right. And if internally you're thinking, oh, you're kind of cringing at a Taylor Swift lyric and you're like, oh, my goodness, I would. Imagine some of the things that we have said that are so far oh. removed from who we are now. So again, when you say these things out loud, it sounds so obvious, but because through repetition, we've been fed this idea that you have to be morally pure. You have to kind of scrape through your history and make sure that any indiscretion is completely wiped out, which I don't believe in at all. I think everything should remain exactly where it is because it then allows us to see, oh my goodness, it is possible to change. Well, and me looking back at even 20 year old me or 18 year old me, I'm so happy that I did those things, even though, you know, there's obviously things I'm not proud of, but I am proud of how Mm -hmm. they shaped me. I'm proud of the man they've made me. And, you know, I've done reparation with the people that I've hurt and that still comes forward sometimes where I remember a new thing and, and need to seek repair. You know, I, I think we often obsess about the people that need to apologize to us, but we don't often think about the people we need to repair with. And yes, as you were saying about, you know, the, the sort of exiling the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of, we, we cancel parts of ourselves And so then I want to cancel anyone that reminds me of that I've even had this thought. So then I never have to live in the nuance and space of my own contradictions. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I use the example of religion because it's so obvious when you've been experienced it. And I think it's easy to witness, right? Like it's easy to witness exile from community. You know, I think of certain religious communities that immediately exile someone as soon as they do something. And, I remember hearing Francis Weller say that, who's a psychotherapist and a, a soul activist, he's been on the podcast, he's incredible. And he, he said like, really what initiated communities do is if someone makes a mistake, that's really them leaving the village and going out on the journey and finding something and learning something. And when they come back to the village and share this truth, 
Yes. They actually need to be asked, what did you learn and what's the wisdom? Because they actually are doing something for the community, but a community that's immature and not initiated and is adolescent Mm. can't hold that. And it's so sad because what you're talking about, this self-sabotage, it feels like this upper limit that's keeping us collectively in an adolescent state, you know? Yes. Oh, I I completely, completely agree. And that example that you've just given off uh, of that community reminds me in Southern Africa, in South Africa specifically, it's called Ubuntu. I don't know if you've heard of it, but if someone does some wrongdoing within the community, instead of exiling them, casting them out, labeling them, they actually sit around the person. And I'm sure people on social media won't have the patience for this, but stay with me. They sit around the person and they tell them all of the beautiful things about Mm. them. They tell them all of the good things about them. You're a good person. This is what you did for me. This is how you've helped me before. So they can really fuel this person with goodness so that it creates an environment for learning. Exactly as you said, but like I said, on social media, you're not, you're not going to. I'm just going to post Ubuntu. Ubuntu? Is that Ubuntu. Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. Ubuntu. Yeah. I mean, what That's a beautiful U- possibility. U-B-U-N-T-U. So anyone listening can search this, but it's, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. We aspire for that. I'm, I'm wondering like beyond the limit that we keep hitting, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, because as I sort of explored, as we're having this conversation, I think, okay, what is beyond this for humanity? You know, like if cancel culture hits this upper limit and then we don't have discourse. So let's say we had discourse. Let's say we had, uh, we moved beyond this. And I think you're really doing a beautiful job of, of saying like, hey, here's actually this space that we collectively have never really made it through. Let's get there. And I think of what's there. And I I feel like there is sort of this willingness to turn towards mortality and death. And because I feel like being wrong or an identity have to die, they're all related to mortality Mm. in some sense. And, And then I think maybe beyond there too is responsibility. Now, if I'm responsible for myself and my feelings, then no longer are our relationships prisons. They're actually free, right? Like, if I'm responsible for my feelings and how I feel, and you're responsible for your feelings and how you feel, and collectively you and I together build this liberated space of love that says it's not conditional anymore. So if it's not conditional, Mm. then I might lose you, but that's only under the premise that I need you because I'm not sovereign. Then I think, okay, well, if we have that self-responsibility, that's individual and just stay with me here. I just need to get this out of my brain is then collectively we have a responsibility to the planet. Collectively, we have a responsibility to to stand up for all of the systems that are wronging us. And I think we can use a reference point of the massive wealth transfer that's just occurred Mm. at the hands of, because lockdowns didn't lock down privileged people. Oh, no. Right. They, They allowed people to still purchase on Amazon and do all the things. So yeah, is that what like how do you feel about what's beyond there and i'm curious what your thoughts as well as beyond there that that yes. that might be there first of all that that was a really really beautiful visual i could even feel just my body kind of relaxing into that because again it's it's just very simple basic ways of relating to each other which which to me is all you and i for example are asking for and what many other people are, are calling for just to be able to relate to each other in a healthy way. 
And I believe that place that we can get to, first of all, I don't think it's a utopia because another <laughs> Thanks for thing that I find that to reality, be... <laughs> Jack, I agree. Not just another puppy dogs th- and ice cream. Over. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's exactly what it needs to be, but it's also not a utopia because mm-hmm. I find that one, just one of the reasons why we are where we are, we're seeking some kind of utopia. We were trying to create the perfect human. And that's never going to happen, never going to happen. So I believe the way that we can get to what what you're talking about, Mark, as well, is understanding, again, really simple, but it's amazing how how difficult we find this, to really appreciate how imperfect we are. Just, Just you on an individual level to really appreciate how imperfect you are. Just take even just five minutes to look at your timeline, the timeline of your life, to look at the things that you've experienced, all the adversity and also the joy, the things that have been done to you and the things that you have done to others. And just observe it. You don't have to judge it. You don't have to label it. Don't pathologize. It's not abnormal. It is. It's already happened, right? It just is. And it just is. And to accept that we're imperfect. And then once we get to that point, I think we can really start creating that environment to appreciate differences. Because to be imperfect, it means that we're different. Because my imperfect doesn't look like yours, which means that you bring so many things that I might not understand, that I might not agree with, but it doesn't make you any less. It just means you just are in the same way that I just am. Mm. So I, I believe that vision that you laid out, which is so beautiful, I believe that to be able to exist there, we need to accept that we are imperfect. We need to accept the truth that we have to coexist on this planet together. And we have a responsibility to look after this planet. It's not about us. It's really not about us. It's not. And because we, we think it's about us, that's when we start to really just project with no rhyme and no reason. So that's kind of what I see when I when I think about it, just as the thoughts come up, that's what I have at this moment in time. And again, it, it starts with us asking questions and being open to discomfort as we ask them. Yeah, that utopia and not being in because I think it's how we what you're saying is we I think what you're saying is that we seek mm-hmm. this space that is free of discomfort and free of pain yes. and free. And, and we all have beautiful asses and great lips and great everything. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's sad because in the idea that that's utopia, there's so, you know, the gray is where, as you said earlier, we all live in the gray. We just pretend that we live in these absolutes, Mm -hmm. but we all know that the truth of our being is in the gray and in the imperfection. And man, when, if we could define the utopia as a space, because even that self-responsibility that we, and collective responsibility that we have to protect the planet, that's not beautiful that's not beautiful that's painful that's lost that's instead we're censoring and canceling people who are speaking Mm. to the space that says let's do some work let's let's destroy the old systems let's build new ones let's but let's Mm. do it collectively with unconditional love and yes you know we say love always wins and but love isn't always fun Like the truth isn't always fun. The truth, actually, when my partner feeds me a truth about how I'm being, I'm not like, this is so beautiful. Like you should, do you have any more stuff that you could? (laughs) But at the same time, there's a part of my soul that says, this is what you need. And for you to keep getting to another level of you as a human being, 
you require her feedback. You require their yes. feedback. You require. And I remember Seth Godin saying like, don't take, like only take feedback from people who actually have your best intentions in mind. Don't exactly. take it from the random troll on the internet. Right, right. And I guess to be able to really discern what is useful and what is not, and this might apply yeah. to everything we're talking about, is really cultivating self-trust. Again, something mm. that I, I sometimes I'm shocked that we don't speak about things like self-trust or self-responsibility or the importance of discomfort, which I, in my eyes, is very different from pain. Discomfort is essential for growth, right? So self-trust, I, I, I would really, I would really like to also just push that to the forefront a little bit more yeah. because to be able to be uncomfortable and then to know what to do with that discomfort, is this useful or is this not, is this worth me kind of giving my time and my energy or is it just worth a little peek and then I, I move on, right? You need self-trust. You need to trust that you can decide what is useful and what is not. But right now, like with many other things, as you've been speaking about, we're outsourcing everything, whether it's to the government, whether it's to influencers online, whether it's to self-proclaimed experts, whether it's to just random people, some random that's just decided to create a four-slide infographic. We just say, okay, all right, take me. <laughs> right? It's in an infographic. It's got to be real. <laughs> Self-trust. So how do we cultivate that? Because that... You know, I think for a lot of us, even self-sabotage, you know, you did a beautiful yeah. job of describing that. How does, because I think everyone hopes to be able to trust their own decisions, their own opinion, their own thoughts. Yeah. So curious, how do you go from a space where you've maybe been taught that you have no authority over your life and that you don't make good decisions? And because mm -hmm. I have, you know, I know lots of people who will be like, what do you think I should do? And I'm like, what do you think you should do? Because yeah. you're just asking me to be the boss of your life, but I don't know your life. I'm going to force you to make your own decision and I'm not even going to affirm yes. it. Just go walk the path, get hit by a bunch mm -hmm. of bushes in the face so that you can learn, which I've had to do that. Yes, yes. Oh, I, I love that because you've pretty much presented the answer because with with a question like that, I know that people, we just want three top tips. Just give me three fucking <laughs> Five ways steps, to okay? so I can <laughs> self-trust. <laughs> give me a listicle so I can be on my way. But I really like what you said because it's a really good starting point. So I would just summarize that and say, just start practicing consulting yourself. Because at this moment in time, a lot of us, maybe myself included, and I don't realize it, it's much easier and our brains work in this way to consult someone else. We don't want to do the kind of mm -hmm. the kind of work that it takes to say, what do I really think? How we, we don't want to do that. We usually do that if we're self-analyzing and ruminating in a way that isn't quite useful. But I would just say, just start consulting yourself and see what that looks like. If you hear someone giving an opinion about the lockdowns, about the vaccine, about anything else that is currently happening in our culture, Instead of just taking it hook, line, and sinker as the default, just say, actually, what do I really think about this and why? Right? You don't you don't even have to sit on it for way too long. But just even just taking a moment, 
you can actually start retraining yourself to respond in a different way. If you see that the majority agree with something, but you can feel in your body, this is another thing. We don't listen to the body enough. Mm. It's always here in the mind. Sometimes your body tells you how you feel before you even have the language for it. A lot of the time, actually, yeah, right? Agreed. You might see that someone's just given an opinion and on a visual level, 10,000 people, or even 2,000 have agreed with it. Everyone's saying, yes, yes. Oh my goodness, I agree. But in your body, it's visceral. You can feel like, mm, actually, I, d I don't really agree. So there's maybe cognitive dissonance, right? Just sit with that and say, actually, why, why do I not agree with this? Mm -hmm. If it just takes a moment. And that already, just that, starts that process of consulting yourself. And you do it over and over and over and over again. You won't always get it right. That's not the point, right? But just start getting used to a new behavior, a new way of being. So I think what you said is beautiful and it's a, it's a good place to start. I find we have to hold that, like you, you, you were mentioning compassion earlier and mm. compassion for other. And I think what happens when you discover a truth that is in conflict with, especially if you've really held a belief very tightly, like if I've fought for this thing and I've put my identity on the line for this thing, mm -hmm. I will dismiss any information that possibly takes me off my pedestal and, yes. and humanizes me. But what's fascinating is you, you talked about discomfort. And so I just wanted to explore that a little more with you because I think the key to that space of, of not being right or having an identity sort of dissolve, which is a good thing because your identity should always be alchemizing in a way Yes. Um, that, that you're able to sit in the discomfort of learning something that disproves something you formally believe, which we think mm -hmm. there's something shameful about that, especially if we've held that righteous, you know, flag, yes. but that is actually healthy shame because you're really learning how, and maybe shame's the wrong word, but that, I don't know. I think it is. It's like this healthy shame that you've just I think you're learned. Right. Yeah. Like there is healthy shame and healthy shame is yes. I did do something wrong yes. and I have been a bad person or whatever it might be, or mm -hmm. unkind maybe is better. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious, like that discomfort, because you speak to it, like we have to learn how to do that, but how do you develop the somatic capacity to, mm. to like just not reach for a fucking phone or a drink or a, you know, because I, for me, sobriety has done that. But of course, sobriety then went to this, yes. you know? So yes. I'm like, well, shit, I got it. It's so easy to be pulled away from everything that, and, and everything's designed to pull me away from presence. Mm, right. And you know what, to that, I would come back to that idea that I shared around accepting that you are an imperfect human, not making mm -hmm. it mean any, you. It, doesn't have like to get out of the judgment huge story yeah it just it just is right and just like sobriety even if you're you're not sober but i'll, I'll use this example it has to be a moment by moment that mm -hmm. discomfort piece it has to be a moment by moment for example with me i have been living in this current space for the past five years consistently day in day out and i speak about discomfort in a really articulate way because i've been speaking about it for so long but i still feel it I still feel it. Same. Of course, logically, I will know how to handle it. And this is how I will kind of do it. Discomfort. Yes, I should invite it in because it's going to help me. But also at the same fucking time, I am a human being. So the moment someone says something, I'm like, 
Ooh, you, you <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, yeah. I, I'm like to my other selves, did you feel that? They're like, yeah, yeah, we did, right? <laughs> but then because I've been training my brain, I'm able to respond to it in a different way. So I say all of that to say, please don't shackle yourself to this idea that you do discomfort one, two, three times, and then you get a certificate, right? It, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Wait, five <laughs> steps to get three ways to be it doesn't, uncomfortable. It's not a week long training. It's not a week long training. Okay. It's a case by case, <laughs> moment by moment, different types of people will ignite a different level of discomfort. Sometimes the discomfort is slight, but sometimes it's really intense. But again, it's just a practice every single mm. time. And it's, it, We've also bought into it many ideas that we've bought into, but this reminds me of another idea, which is um, that things are supposed to feel good. And I don't know if this is because of Hollywood and films and, you know, TV and media and advertising, right? Everything is supposed to feel good. Your relationship, as long as you find each other attractive and you live somewhere beautiful, it should all just feel good. Yeah, and the moment that it doesn't, it signals that everything is wrong. No, it just means everything comes in waves. So discomfort is exactly the same thing. It's not, things are not supposed to feel good all the time. And once you accept that and also appreciate that some of the things that will really open the door to you, for you to understand yourself, other people and the world you inhabit, they're going to be a little bit uncomfortable because they have to work with whatever your current belief system mm -hmm. is. And exactly as you were saying, cognitive dissonance is, is a very real thing where you have to work with a conflicting idea, right? Confirmation bias is also very real, right? We only, most of the time, consume information that already confirms what we believe and how we already think. So the moment you encounter something different, you will feel discomfort. Again, you don't have to overthink it. You don't have to judge it so much. Just observe it and just choose a different behavior. So that's a very long-winded way of saying just like consulting yourself, it's another practice. But don't think about it as in, oh, I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life. It's just a moment by moment thing. Sometimes you won't feel it. Sometimes you will. Just be with it, right? What what I hear in that is that it's a good sign that you're stretching, that you're expanding. Yes. That it, yes. you're on the right path in a way. And of course, differentiating discomfort from sitting in abuse or sitting in something exactly. like that, right? Exactly, you know, exactly. Which, which is inviting us to stand, which is inviting us to fight, yeah. which is inviting us to, you know, change. All of it is inviting us to change patterns and behavior. It you know? really is. It really is. And it's, it just keeps coming back to self-trust and self-responsibility because for me to be able to discern, is this healthy discomfort or am I actually in a harmful situation mm -hmm. that I need to put up boundaries or to leave entirely? I need to be able to trust myself. I need to create that environment for trust, right? Which means I need to be able to experience different types of discomfort so that I can be able to differentiate and tell which is which. So the moment we outsource all responsibility and make everyone else the issue, everyone else is the problem. Yes, there are very real systems that we live under and I will never, I will never deny any of that. And in the same breath, there are things that we contribute to that we need to take responsibility for. And we house all of those things. We're the house for all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to check in with what's happening at home. So yeah, self-trust keeps kind of finding its way back. Well, 
I've got to say, I could talk to you all day because the subject <laughs> and the way you speak about it is incredible. And, you know, I hope that for you, the listener, that at least the modeling of this conversation, because uh, I think that's what's important is if we've never heard dialogue and bridges being built, then even being able to have that conversation within ourselves that differentiates the self-saboteur self from, you know, and, and being able to recognize trust or, or trauma from truth, you know, this space, mm -hmm. it always comes from this discourse and actually taking you know, taking a piece of information from your body and acting upon it for the first time is one of those moments where, you know, because someone could say, go do that thing. And yeah. it doesn't matter. It's you have to do the thing. And that's what you're telling us. Uh, it, you know, again, fuck, that's what I hear. <laughs> that's <laughs> no, what I hear. It is. No, you're right. You're right. It is. It is what I'm telling all of us. And I love that word us, because even if you listen to the way that I speak, publicly, I always say we, I always say us. And it's not something that, you know, it's a strategy. It, it just comes by default because I'm not, I'm not exempt from this. I'm not on a pedestal. I always also tell people, just remove everyone from a pen. We're all at eye level. That's another way that we can, regardless of the vanity metrics, what following someone has or what, you know, qualifications they have or whether they're an expert in this, you're still an expert in yourself. Yeah. Everyone is at eye level, you know? So yeah, it's, it's us. Mm. It's all of us. It's That's so important. Us. So important that the people we put on the pedestal, we make not accessible, you mm. know? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I remember when someone first asked me like, what do you value? And I was like, uh, I don't know. And they're like, who do you look up to? Because that's what you value. And, you know, you've done such a beautiful job of modeling uh, the values that live within my body. And, you know, I continuously through observing your work and seeing it shared everywhere too, uh, I've really felt like throughout the last year and a half, two years, I'd say even, you know, two years for sure, you continued to face the barrage. You continued to speak to the storm so they could hear a voice that was attempting to find reason within this and compassion throughout it, because it would have been so easy for you to be like, fuck this. I'm not right. This bridge sucks. I'm going to go, you know, <laughs> hang out with my friends. Uh, but you didn't and you still don't. And you continue to inspire. So thank you so much for taking all of your life experiences and alchemizing them into the wisdom that you share and continue to share. Uh, you know, what I love is that you sort of live out loud. So I appreciate that mm -hmm. about you. And, and thank you for sharing with my, with me and, and with my audience. I'm very grateful. Oh, Mark, thank you so much. I, I have goosebumps. Thank you. I receive that fully. And I have to give you a reflection as well, because conversations like this and the conversations that you are having and the way that you have been sharing over the years so consistently and you still put so much of yourself into every single thing that also contributes to what I do in many many ways whether you realize it or not and that's why I was so excited to have this this conversation with you because I do see the parallels in our work and the fact that with sober people as well, or people even that have just tried it for a little bit, you naturally see the world differently. You do, because you've met your shadow, you've met your mess, you've mm. met all the awkward parts of yourself. 
And the fact that we can come together and have this conversation in clarity is such a beautiful thing. So thank you. Mm, I fully receive that. Thank you very much. Well, for the people listening, where can they find more of you? Yes. So I only have one social media platform, which is Instagram. You can find me at Africa Brook with an E at the end. And I have two podcasts. So I have one podcast which focuses on self-sabotage and is called Beyond the Self with Africa Brook. My second podcast is called Unfiltered with Africa Brook, where I focus on collective sabotage, which is all the things that we've been speaking about today. Um, or you can just find me on my website, www.africabrook.com. Perfect. We'll make sure we link it all out. And mm-hmm. thank you once again. I mean, this, the modeling that you've done for just the journey within to hold compassion for self and for other has been uh, truly remarkable. So I appreciate that. Thank you.